Hello. 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 And welcome to Pioneer's Post podcast. Social enterprise stories and conversations from across the world. Hi, I'm Bob Toost, co-founder of Practical Governance. Hi, I'm Af Potts. I'm the founder of Camarados. Welcome to the Feelings Mutual podcast series where Maff and I are joined by guests from all backgrounds to discuss the concept of mutual aid and the proposition that it lies at the very heart of systems change and social justice. Mutual aid means that we look out for each other, you support me and I support you. In the wake of COVID-19, thousands of new groups have been set up on these principles, but have we lost the mutual in mutual aid along the way? Uh, we're over the moon that everyone's talking about mutual aid, but unfortunately, some of it is bollocks. We hope this series will have open and honest discussions from all perspectives around the theme of mutual aid. Let's go for it. In this episode, we're joined by Pat Fernandez and Simon Kay. Simon works in the think tank policy world at an organisation called the New Local Government Network. Primarily on what we call our community paradigm uh, work stream, which is all about community power, um, devolving more to localities and localities devolving more directly authority, autonomy and responsibility to communities in particular places and all the benefits that can come from doing that. Simon has recently co-authored a report discussing the rise of mutual aid in response to COVID-19. And Pat works for a charity called Advice for Renters as a community financial inclusion manager alongside a multitude of other roles, including overseeing a credit unions, an advocate for a charity called Acts 435, and with mental health peer support groups. My role is all about working with individuals to empower them to take control of their finances, also working with community groups and organisations to help them to build financially resilient communities. Welcome, Pat and Simon, and thank you so much for joining us today. It'll be great to kick off the conversation with your definitions of mutual aid. What are your instant reactions to that phrase? Yeah, well, it's a tr- mutual aid is a, is a tricky one. Uh, for me... Mutual aid means informal reciprocity. So not necessarily everyone giving equally, but everyone looking for opportunities to give as much as they can within a community. And because of that, everyone being confident that they can look out for the people around them in a really involved way, because they know that there's that that's what those people would do for them too. And that's what they're, they're, they're expecting in return. So it's, it's at least the potential for that complete reciprocity. Pat, what about you? When you hear the phrase mutual aid, what does it conjure up for you? To me, mutual aid is all about ordinary people helping their community, working with their community and community interconnecting. I guess it's more about the concept of mutuality and people moving forward together side by side. And again, like Simon, it doesn't mean that some people aren't in a worse position or are able to give as much as other people, but it's that general connection and desire to move forward to the promised land, if you like. In our last podcast, Maff and I talked with another two fantastic women about um, mutual aid. And we had a bit of a conversation, particularly around how much of mutual aid have been slightly co-opted or wasn't feeling like it, it really lived these values of mutuality that we've been talking about. And, and um, whilst we got a lot of interest in, in, in the podcast and lots of feedback, there was some criticism as well, wasn't there, Matt? Yeah. Well, you know, it's great uh, to hear that it really, really connected with people, but I was, as always, uh, more fascinated in the criticism. And um, it was actually... A couple of people we were hoping to come on and, and be part of the show, 
uh, in future, and they declined on the basis that <laughs> they thought we were very one-sided. And, um, and that, was, that was a really good challenge. Um, I just only wish they'd come on the show and said it, cause I, and I really would love them to, uh, to consider coming back and telling us about that, because uh, you know, we need all sides of the argument on this one. Absolutely. Uh, I wondered whether, having listened to it, uh, either of you had any thoughts or feedback on that as well. Um, Simon, uh, any thoughts having listened to it? I think it's a bit unusual for me to be in a conversation where I'm probably the most institutionally minded person, um, which I just, just from that first podcast, I think it's possible I am here today. Um, so usually I'm the person arguing that there needs to be much more autonomy, much less top down stuff, much less management, less command and control, whatever. And I don't think you'll hear me saying much that's different to that today. But I do think that one of the things, and maybe maybe in a minute, I'll, I'll tell you a bit about the report in a very brief way. We did some research recently on the mutual aid group phenomenon during the pandemic, uh, and particularly during the kind of the toughest part of lockdown. And one of the things we learned from that is that there's a sort of a, a crucial relationship, whether we think sh- this should be the case or not, there's a crucial relationship with local organizations and with local councils, local authorities. Uh, that really sometimes had a make or break power over the the functioning of these groups. And to live in the real world and to be practical, as so many of these groups were, means having a good relationship and finding ways to cooperate well together. Pat, any any reflections from you? I think the mutual aid concept is a wonderful, wonderful um, concept. And, you know, please God, we get to utopia, but we're still working within a framework of structure and systems and um it should be about collaboration to to get the best from local authorities if that's who you need to speak to or collaboration with other organizations as well where sometimes i felt from my own um uh, experience that perhaps a reticence to do that and it's like we have a brand we are mutual aid what we do we don't need anybody this is about us I just wanted to comment on on that, Pat, because I think it's uh, sad that it becomes a very binary uh, and polarized kind of either or situation. I think we must be able to work alongside each other. And I thought what was so great about the challenge from the people who we wanted to come on the show was was that they were saying, look, really great stuff is done in the name of, of local authorities as well. And it is of a very mutual aid basis. I think what happens when you get very passionate about it, like we did, you can come across one sided. But I think, to be honest, that is slightly forgivable because the system has it its own way 95% of the time. And so when there's such a lack of trust in the system behaving in a mutual way, because for centuries they haven't, it's kind of understandable to have a slight cynicism about that, I think. And then COVID comes along and yet again, they take something like mutual aid and do it in a top-down way. I think that's where the passion came from. But absolutely, we want to open the doors on anyone who wants to change that. And I think, um, I thought it was just such a great challenge to us to think, okay, Let's listen. And um, I'm really keen to hear from both of you today on that basis. Thanks, Matt. And thank you, Pat and Simon, for those reflections. So we'll get into the, to the meat of it. Simon, you, you alluded to the report that you recently uh, put out from New Local Government Network called uh, Communities versus Coronavirus. Um, if you, could you give us a little sort of pricey of some of that and, and how you went about it and what you found? So we, we examined the same phenomenon as so many people are talking about, thousands of spontaneous voluntary and self-defined mutual aid groups that emerged to support the the most vulnerable people. And they did this extraordinary range of stuff. So I know that everyone's aware that they were helping supply food and medicine to people who were shielding. 
we argue that they actually made the shielding policy of central government possible as a result. But beyond that, they worked, these groups worked incredibly hard to connect with lonely people, to organize community resources, set up food banks, tackle inequality. They uncovered existing service needs, and they just galvanized communities in this really extensive way uh, that we thought was absolutely fascinating. And, and, and within the kind of the structural limitations, the centralized society that we were just reflecting on, even more amazing, even more striking. So we think it's a demonstration of a lot of what we talk about when we talk about community power, particularly in that more informal um, uh, and unmanaged sense. Uh, and so we, we rendered a few lessons and recommendations from that. Um, the, the main point from our lessons was that this, this has worked. And in fact, it's made everything else work to a huge extent and in many different places. The scale of these groups was important. And yes, the relationship between these groups and the existing networks, the existing institutions they're surrounded by, the council, the state in a wider sense, has been really important. Uh, and the, the most successful groups have encountered what we describe as a facilitative or an enabling stance from the local council, for example. So that leads us to a bunch of recommendations. And first of all, and this might be the controversial one uh, for this discussion, that councils should actively look for a way to play a facilitative role when they interact with mutual aid groups. And of course, councils are always going to run into and, and interact with these groups uh, when they're in operation. So the, the argument here is that when they do that, they should look for, for, for any opportunity they can to back these groups up without managing them, without micromanaging, controlling them, uh, or expecting them to adhere to bureaucratic principles of any kind, really. Uh, we also argue that in order for councils to learn to do this well, they need to be resourced to do it well. Uh, so that's the second recommendation. Then there needs to be some kind of recognition of the financial costs for councils, which is a huge problem for councils in, in times of austerity and, uh, and economic trouble. And the third one, which I think is sometimes overlooked, was that one of the conditions that made all this mutual aid work possible was the fact that people were on furlough, that people who owned small businesses or did other things for their day job couldn't do it anymore. There was an economic as well as a social lockdown. And this gave people so much free time. And what people did with that, with that free time is so inspiring because they look for ways to support each other. Um, and so the third recommendation is about trying to find ways to move that into the conversation about economic change and recovery. More flexibility, more free time. Because now we know that people will be working to build up the resilience and mutuality of their communities when they have that free time. So that's, that's the report in a nutshell. Thanks, Simon. Lots to, to chew, chew over there. Would you like to talk a little bit, you know, reacting to what Simon said about the role of, of community groups and mutual aid groups working with institutions and where that goes right or wrong? We've had an interesting situation with um, Brent, which is my local authority, um, at the moment where they are um, wanting to give a gift of money to a fund that is being set up and then be completely hands off with it. And I find that really fascinating. I mean, it's very, it's very interesting when you speak to them about it because um, they're like, well, you know, we don't want it to be bureaucratic. We don't want there to be um, a formal structure. We want it to be as automated as possible. So, you know, the kind of idea that jumped to mind was, so I should probably preface that with saying that we're looking to give grants of 
between 30 and 50 pounds to anybody that asks, anybody that needs it. And the council actually really excited about this concept. And what's blank to mind is the thought of almost like a community ATM where people could almost get money on demand. Um, and we put this to the council and they were like, yeah, why not? And that was kind of, you know, to me, I kind of sat there and thought, oh, this is either madness or genius, but I'm open to it either way. And if it all comes about and works, then I think this can be such a tremendous model. You know, if Brent can do this, then surely other councils can be persuaded to do this as well. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Simon, I just wondered if you could uh, just elucidate on this a little bit, because things like the Solidarity Fund and, and stuff Brent are doing, uh, this is kind of comes, I guess, under the heading of Catalyst a bit. And I see that um, in your report, you talk about community catalysts, you talk about local area coordinators. I just wondered w how you felt about this idea of you know, local th authorities finding their role as convener catalysts, but then getting the hell out of the way. Um, it's still a role to play, but it's that awareness to when to leave the room, as it were. Yeah, no, I think it's tremendously exciting uh, to have this kind of funding, this kind of funding experiment taking place. It's worth saying that it doesn't have to be the state. It doesn't have to be councils that are responsible for making a gift or, or creating a fund in this way. Uh, one of the most exciting developments over the last uh, 10 years or so has been the emergence of the, the Big Local Project, uh, which I'm sure many of you listeners are familiar with, where you know the money is given to a community, usually a carefully selected uh, and, and, and geographically divinable community. A million pound fund is created and it must be spent in accordance with the wishes of a steering group that's assembled where the, where the local community has uh, the deciding say on what happens with that. One of the things that I, you know, I, I've often wondered in this kind of an environment is where sort of institutions and money and resources um, meet you know, that kind of upsurge of neutrality and community that you were referring to there. Um, can the two meet? You know, does it ever really sit comfortably um, you and your reports will talk about funding for the, for um, facilitating role, and I'd quite like to explore what that facilitating role might look like. Have you got one or two sort of thoughts or examples you might be able to share? Yeah, well, it's yeah, the the money usually comes with strings attached. Even even money that's explicitly kind of provided without those strings uh, can create a power dynamic, and the effects of that dynamic can be incredibly difficult to track. Certainly, it'll change it'll change the way these groups think of themselves and the way they relate internally as well as externally to the people furnishing the money and to the council, the, the institutions around them. It's incredibly complex. It's, of course, a good thing uh, to resource community efforts. The recommendation we made was that the council needs to be, can't be expected to get good at facilitation in a, in a financial vacuum, which is essentially what most councils are facing at this point. But that's sort of a, that's sort of a side issue. There's a power dynamic within these mutual aid groups as well as outside of them and in their relationships with others. And what I mean by that is that, of course, there are some people who will receive more aid than they gave. Um, and some groups that we talked to, that we, that we observed, if you like, online, were entering into really quite transactional or one-directional relationships with some of the people providing services and some people making more use of services. And it's, of course, it's hard to, to look at that and say, oh, that's mutualism. Um, 
because we're in a society and in a context, probably an, an, an uh, unavoidable context. I don't know if there is a version of society where this isn't true, where some people need more and some people are in a position to give more. And that's what these groups reflected quite a lot of the time. But I also heard a lot of stories about how the people who were shielding, for example, who tended to be um, supported by mutual aid groups, self-defined mutual aid groups, and receiving support that way, were then engaging in the group and supplying back what they could. There was one anecdote of a woman whose entire outlook shifted because suddenly she was in a position not just to receive food from the group, but uh, actually was cooking for a couple of her neighbors and building new connections, and everything changed uh, as a result. And I spoke personally to a lot of people who said, I know this is selfish. I never want the lockdown to end. I'm speaking to more people. I'm making more connections than I have before. So anyway, that, that's sort of my reflection on the on the kind of internal power dynamics. But I th the, the relevance here, I think, is that we'd expect an external power dynamic to always persist as well. And there's a balance that must be carefully struck if institutions of various kinds, if the state in particular, I'd say, wants to finance and support and foster connections, be the catalyst, to use that word, then they have to understand that that, that blows on the dice a little bit, that has a little impact. And it'll be quite unusual to dispose of public funds in a way that doesn't lead to a lot of a pressure for accountability, for people to scrutinize results. It changes the environment, uh, even with no strings attached. Not necessarily in a bad way, but in a way that I think will tend to lead to more formalization of group activities. And formalization, I think, to some extent would be a pity because informal working is what made these groups diverse locally attuned and agile. Pat, you talked quite a lot about Acts 435, some of the humanity behind it, rather than it being a transactional thing. So I wonder if you'd say a little bit about that. Um, so the idea behind it um, is that uh, requests can be posted for anybody that's in crisis or has a need or has, has an issue um, in 500 characters, so two long tweets or a very, very short sentence. And then donors can access the website. Anybody can be a donor and they can filter um, the requests however they want to. So they can filter by geographical location. They could filter by subject matter. So it might be um, uh, people with disabilities in Manchester or people with benefit sanctions in Glasgow. They can, they can filter in any way. Um, and then they can donate to whichever particular request speaks to their heart, seems to them. So they know that 100% of all of their money is going directly to the cause, to the person that they want that to go to. Um, and all that we ask in return is, or everything's anonymized, everything's confidential. The only thing that the donor gets, uh, and as I say, they can donate anything from five up to 150 pounds is they'll just get a thank you message from um, the, the recipient. But what I find, something that sort of sits a little bit uncomfortably with me about um, sort of idea of a community ATM at the moment is that there does seem to be that loss of humanity. Quite often, a lot of the people that I'm working with are very much sort of, we talked about being on the edge uh, in your last podcast. These people are sort of beyond the edge. They've fallen over the edge of the cliff. And they're, they're languishing right at the bottom of the, um, the gully, if you like. Um, a lot of times people want to be heard. So there needs to be that interaction with another human. 
that connection, if you like, with another human. That's something that's really, really important to me in terms of, of, of mutuality and in terms of mutual aid. My fear about mutual aid is how does it expand? How does it get bigger? What defines a successful mutual aid movement? To me, I think it works best when it's very local, very hyper-local. I think there's an inherent danger of as it gets bigger or as a group gets bigger, perhaps that it be- and becomes more structured, becomes more systematic, becomes um, more, more bureaucratic and loses that spontaneity, that ability to respond to um, issues that are thrown up and extraordinary issues that are, are thrown up in uh, an, an autonomous way. Um, so that's, that's a challenge, I think, sort of like moving forward in the future. And I think what's happened now is that it's filled an amazing gap and done an amazing job as a sort of national movement. I completely agree with you, Pat, a thousand percent on the whole. Uh, it's about connection and connection is is the thing that truly matters. I don't want to, however, be so incredibly prescriptive as not to say there are other ways in which, you know, you can do good things and th- good things can happen and, you know, money is useful. I guess I just think the with money comes power. Um, it always does. Uh, and, you know, I think it's pretty much always better to be able to mitigate the power issue and the corrosive power dynamics by having a relationship. So if you, if you know the person and can, and build up a, a trust, there's that word again, um, then the money, um, you know, it, it, it works better in, in not creating a dependency, not disempowering and disenabling people. It also feels pretty rubbish to be receiving charity a lot of the time, which people don't talk much about because charity is a lovely thing and often it's run by lovely people. So nobody gets cross about it, but, but well, I do. Um, I, I think it can really make someone feel rubbish. Um, so dignity is pretty important. And, and I just think that comes with a relationship, not a handout. And, and I think um, things like the Solidarity Fund you were talking about earlier, I just really love to dig into, you know, how do we stop um, that being a handout that makes people feel rubbish and become dependent um, instead of making them feel empowered? And, and just before we jump onto that one, um, you, you talked about mutual aid and, and the future. Um, I saw in Simon's report that one of the key findings, I think one of your five key findings, was that small is better. And I think that plays to what you were saying, Pat, which is, um, you know, keeping it neighbor to neighbor and keeping it local um, is, is what makes it work. Because you've got the, in, the intel, the intelligence, people know each other, they're able to calibrate it. Whereas, as I'm often saying, you know, when you systemize and you take things to scale, you, you very often dehumanize um, so those are kind of two things, really. I just wanted to mention on that, which is kind of keeping it local. Totally agree, but um, I think and, and connection. Totally agree. And without it, I'm really worried about some of those financial ideas that are coming out. I think the sort of general thinking at the moment is people's, in terms of the solidarity fund, people's dignity will be maintained through anonymity. Um, and that, again, that doesn't sit right with me because if there's no connection, there's no humanity, there's no relationship, how are you helping that person to improve their life? How are you empowering them? It's like sticking a plaster on a, t- on a tumour. You know, is that person going to be back next month in exactly the same situation? Um, how do we move forward? And this, this you know, as um, Simon was saying, um, mutual aid flourished at a time when people had time on their hands 
we're entering into a um, timeline now where there are going to be fewer people, fewer time, less time on their hands, still with great intentions in their heart. But how do we make that work? I think there's something fascinating there, Pat, you know, in, in that we have a sort of society or the way in which we've structured our, our busy lives that make that natural intention, you know, those good intentions and that ability to want to help others kind of, there's, there's so little room for it, it seems to me. Simon, interested in, in your reflection on the last little bit of conversation. One of the risks here, in a way, is, is, is coming from a good place, because I think it's very clear to us, and I think it's increasingly clear to many councils, that there's an awful lot to learn from the mutual aid phenomenon. And in trying to learn from it, there's a, there's a slight risk that they'll crush the butterfly's wings, you know, as they try and catch it. And uh, that would be a tremendous, a tremendous pity because what they could learn is so important. And, and the primary learning has to be that there are times when you can get out of the way and say, good on you, you're nailing it, you know, keep it up, keep, keep checking in with us and, and, and let us know when we can help you. And that, that was the kind of relationship that led to the very best outcomes, at least in, in, our, in our experience, in our research. So yes, I, you know, councils have a tremendous amount to learn from mutual aid groups, but we're reaching that point of trade-off where if these groups want to sustain themselves in the absence of furlough, for example, as the economy recovers, as the initial crisis, uh, hopefully, Touchwood subsides, um, we're going to see that the will to continue and to keep these networks active, if they're not to be... Um, sort of dormant networks, and there might be a value in that too, which is worth thinking about uh, also. But if they're to be active, these groups are probably going to come under quite a lot of pressure, whether via resourcing or through relationships or just getting kind of mixed in to formalize. Uh, and, and like I said, I think that, that, that trade-off could be quite, quite challenging for mutual aid as it goes into the future. There's the potential for these networks to sort of, these groups to, to have meaning and to be a kind of a an immune system for our communities into the future. That's not necessarily the spirit of mutualism uh, that we're talking about more widely. It's, it's more of an expression of the idea that communities act in a certain way during a crisis, and we should, we should admire it, particularly when it happens under non-ideal conditions and within a hugely centralized and uh, unequal society like ours. I think it would be a shame if it was just uh, something brought into, uh, in, in case another pandemic comes back, a sort of immune uh, response. It would be lovely if people saw the lessons from COVID-19 as something that is a way to live. Um, it would be <laughs> mutualism and something doesn't need a name. It just needs to be what we do. Um, and and I, I think when we were saying that, oh, you know, people are not going to have time. It's like, let's make time for this because this is, <laughs> this is the stuff that makes it worthwhile living in a community. I mean, uh, uh, Pat, I saw an interview you gave recently where you were talking about um, saving and um, work, the work you do with credit unions. And I, I loved um, how, how money and, and this spirit of mutualism combined beautifully in, a, in old people uh, coming together. Uh, sorry, there's probably a more politically correct way than calling them old people, but um, uh, they come together and they um, put their money in for their subs, for the club that they come together. And then they put a few quid into the credit union, so they save. And it got them in the habit of saving. But it's done as a group. They all know each other. They come together for a cup of tea every week. And so the saving and the money is all just part of community life. And I, I thought, yes, that's what we should be doing. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yeah, well, it's interesting, actually, to hear Simon talking about uh, resilience hubs, um, if you like, because that's something that I'm, I'm working towards at the moment. So I do a lot of work with um, Caritas. I'm Catholic. I like for a big Catholic church, big old Irish Catholic church. I have a fabulous priest whose sister just happens to be the president of ABCOL, which is the Association of British Credit, Credit Unions. And it's like, let's let's start a credit union. Well, let's not start a credit union, but let's affiliate to a credit union and start our own community savers club. And it was recognising that we live, again, in Brent, in a very impoverished part of Brent, um, with a, a thriving community of both elderly people. Elderly, I think, is a better word than old people. And um, perhaps not. And um, young families. Wow. Um, you know, talking about almost crisis resilience, um, but the thing is we are in the midst of a poverty pandemic as well, a savings crisis, a debt crisis. So there is this, this idea that this is ongoing. So no matter how I try, there will only ever be so much capacity to deal with sort of financial issues in Brent or nationally. I think of 9 million people that are recognised to be over-indebted, only about 1.5 million of, them, million of them ever get recourse to financial advice, debt advice, financial capability, resilient skills, that sort of thing. Um, so we set, up, we set up an affiliated branch of a credit union. Uh, we only ran it really, really lowly resourced with a couple of volunteers, a couple of days a week. Um, and anybody could just pop in. And the thing that they, that was really, really important is that they could just put in small amounts, deposit small amounts of money. So they might have a pound here, a couple of pounds there. I think a lot of people don't save because they think, you know, I haven't got a spare tenner or 20 pounds or 50 pounds a month, so I can't do it. Um, but the most important thing, and for my working friend, or just generally really, um, many cultures have saving circles. So in the West Indian community, uh, they have something called a partner in the Indian community. They have something called a kitty, uh, the Beng um, Pakistani community. They have a committee. But sort of in any culture, you will almost find that there's some sort of saving circle. Um, it's a tremendous honour to be invited to be part of one of these because it means that you are an established person and that it's recognised that you're financially solvent and that you won't default on this. Have you come across some particular kind of examples uh, or case studies in particular areas? Um, where the relationship between those kind of mutual aid groups and, and local authorities have really clicked, in your opinion, or, or point perhaps to the, to the, to the way uh, to the future? The stuff that struck me as being most effective was really small touches. So the first, the most important thing, I suppose, is quite big, which is that councils that, that were interested in supporting mutual aid groups to care about things like safety and safeguarding, particularly during a pandemic, uh, in terms of cleanliness and hygiene, uh, but weren't going to go about it didactically, weren't going to force things, weren't going to withhold support until certain boxes got ticked. But beyond that, the sorts of support that groups really benefited from, uh, particularly at that hyper-local scale, was so, it was so practical and so simple. It was stuff like providing a float so that these groups would have the, the basic cash in order to get hold of resources um, facilitating conversations with the local businesses and supermarkets that can provide food to people, you know, supplying a little bit of technological know-how so that people can set up a form or can, or, or, or uh, in one case, we, we spoke to a, a group where the, where the council had 
uh, supplied the mutual aid group admirably quickly with mobile phones and phone contracts, which allowed them to operate a helpline uh, because the council knew that they wouldn't be able to respond as, as, as quickly as they wanted to the kinds of things that the mutual aid group in that very local area could. Tiny little things that can make a huge difference. These are the sorts of support that actually uh, we, we tracked in particular. Everything that's worked well during this horrible crisis has been the stuff that doesn't infantilize people that respects people and the, the capacities, the abilities, the time and the effort that people will and can put in. And I, it's for me, it's just shone this light on the incredible extent to which, and we're just so used to it, to which people are infantilized in their relationships with institutions and, and particularly with, with councils and the state. Um, and this is a phenomenon that at least has proven that people, people are, are capable they can get so much done. In so many cases, they got so much more done than the institutions that would seek to do it on our behalf because we can't be trusted to do it well. And that's, that's a lesson that has to be learned, I think. That's very useful. Thank you. I'll have a few closing kind of thoughts, things that this conversation has made me um, kind of reflect on. You know, lots of words stood, stood out, but this idea of scale was particularly interesting. You know, and the sort of drive to want to capture some of the fantastic work that has gone on and you know people have stood up and noticed and thought about the capacity um and the incredible community response to a crisis um and it's sort of there is this drive to want to capture and preserve it which which is wonderful but if we're capturing and preserving it using sort of the models of a scale and investment that perhaps we're used to is almost exactly the opposite of what will capture it and preserve it and so it requires a quite a different um, uh, way of thinking. You describe it as kind of catalyst. So I mean, we talk about relationships of trust. We talk about being alongside, not infertilizing. These are quite fundamental shifts in the way of working, um, which are quite, quite different to trying to scale it. And, and my fear is this kind of sense of um, invest, scale, capture. And a bit like your analogy, Simon, you, know, you capture the butterfly and crush its wings. Um, and I think there's a lot to be learned and taken uh, from what we've got here but but it isn't just about crisis i think somebody said this is how we should live our lives and that's kind of really stuck with me from the conversation i think we tend to discuss mutual aid from a perspective of the people that are in a position to help mutually and to perhaps empower other people to re receive and to help others mutually when they're in that position um but I, I still think there's just a massive massive amount of people who may never be able to be in that position or may have no desire or whose lives may be so chaotic that and perhaps it's because they've been so institutionalized and um lacking in in hope and dignity and possibilities and i think it's so important, so terribly, terribly important to reach out to that humanity, with humanity, to to walk to walk alongside people, to hold their hands, and sometimes it might mean carrying them, um, and it might infantilize them, but ultimately you're you're heading to that destination, and you're walking together. And to me, that's what mutual aid should be about, and that's what. Well, that's what mutuality should be about. I think what I would say is trust uh, and connection are the big words that I've heard from everyone uh, today. 
I still, you know, just have a huge nervousness around some of the money stuff. I think when I was uh, when I was loving what you were saying, Pat, it was when you were talking about credit unions because I, I was just thinking that is just kind of you know a view of what the world could be like. When I was anxious about what you were saying, it was when you were talking about the solidarity fund and things like that, which is 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 sort of like. I do find it sort of going a bit far the other way. It's like the local authority, like, right, we'll give tons of oversight or we'll give no oversight. There, there is stuff in between. And I, I think money becomes becomes difficult. And I mainly enjoyed Simon's language. I, I am now going to be talking about blowing over the dice and crushing butterfly wings. And so that's my big takeaway from, from what Simon said. But Matt, I, I totally agree with you about um, the Solidarity Fund and about the council. And that is... Myself, where I am most anxious and nervous. And as I say, it's either going to be madness or genius. I could listen to both of you all day, honestly. You're both fabulous speakers. I really enjoyed it. It was great. It was a really good chat. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been fabulous. I'd love to thank uh, both of you, Simon and Pat, for your contribution and for such an open and honest conversation um, about uh, your experiences. We really hope that everyone enjoyed the podcast and we'd love to hear your feedback, uh, be it good or bad. If you fancy joining us on a future discussion, please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. And please send your emails to hello at practicalgov.co.uk.